Alright, Luke chapter 18. Let's open up there. Luke chapter 18. Well, Father, I pray that as my sister Debbie just just asked, that Your anointing would be on this teaching. And that Your Spirit would be our rabbi. And that You would give us understanding and enlightenment and illumination that doesn't come from the heart or the soul of man, but comes from Your Spirit. And bless this time, Father. May we be encouraged in Your Word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. So how's your walk with the Lord? I could ask it another way. I could say, how's your prayer life? Because honestly, you don't have one without the other. It's the same question. We like to use the phrase, how's your walk with the Lord? You've probably heard that or maybe even said that at some point in your life. How's your walk? And how's your prayer life? And the truth is, my walk with Jesus is as rich and sweet and full as the time I spend in prayer. In my life, I don't know about you, but for me, God has spent years lifting the religion out of the praying. Years trying to break me of the mentality that it was the guy up front who says the prayers, or it was my dad around the table, or it was someone who was qualified to do so, or if I was to pray, there was a right way and a wrong way, and I had to be sure and get it right, because otherwise I might offend the Father. And so we take this religious view of prayer, and yet that's not how the Father desires it. We just sang, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne make all my wants and wishes known. In seasons of distress and grief, my soul has often found relief and oft escaped the tempter's snare by thy return, sweet hour of prayer. Man, religion can't do that. And, And law and... The appropriate approach, you know, all of that misses the fact that prayer, like everything else we've been studying here in the Gospel of Luke, prayer is a relationship. Over and over and over, this this study through Luke has been blowing my mind because I can't get away from relationship. And maybe it's just where I am and maybe it's just what the Lord is saying, but it is all about walking in relationship with Him. Being in an interactive, ongoing uh, communication. And that's prayer. And Jesus, as we open up Luke chapter 18, further portrays a prayerful relationship with God. It was so on Jesus' heart. Luke's going to talk about prayer over 25 times in his Gospel. Ironically, just a side note, the Apostle John doesn't use the word prayer, praying, or pray one time in his Gospel. But he talks about it constantly. John, Jesus' closest friend, doesn't even need to use a word for the way he communicated and and invites us to communicate with the Lord. But Luke talks a lot about prayer, and here as we open up chapter 18. Luke 18, verse 1, now he was telling them a parable, note this, to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Okay, that's the purpose for the parable. I think it's interesting. The Spirit inspired Luke to give us a heads up. This is what the parable is about, just in case we should miss it. 
that we should pray at all times and not lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling. But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. (laughs) And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. And now will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry out to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? The parable is an invitation, but Jesus leaves it hanging with a question. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith? It's as if to say, will you accept the invitation? The invitation is to come to the Lord with perseverance, with patience, with consistency. Keep coming back to the Lord. Be tenacious in seeking this relationship. God has flung the door open wide to say, Come on, let's talk. Let's relate. Bring your heart to Me. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? Jesus told this parable again to encourage persistent prayer. In fact, you might note that. The first thing to know, we're going to talk a lot about prayer in this chapter and a half or so tonight. The first thing is simply this, pray persistently. Pray persistently. And Jesus uses two teaching tools to get this message across. Two teaching tools. The first one is comparison, and the second one is contrast. In this parable, by comparison, I'm the widow. I'm the widow. She has no one to defend her. She has no one to go before her. She doesn't have a husband to cover her or protect her or to bring her case for her. She's got to do it herself. And she has no help in this. All she's got is her tenacity. All she's got is her willingness to come back again and again. Same thing with you and same thing with me. In our lives, all we have is persistence to come before the Lord. Because we ain't going to figure it out on our own. Those of you who are good at controlling life, those of you who have it all mapped out and who know how to work the plan, guess what? Eventually you're going to come to a big old hole in your plan that is unworkable. And the Lord says, just be tenacious. You all are like widows. Bring it to me. And so there's a great comparison. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Pray without ceasing. Don't lag. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Just keep praying. Yeah, but what if I've been praying for years and I'm not getting any results? Doesn't matter. You realize that the answer to the prayer is not the point. The relationship in the prayer is the point. The time spent with the Lord, that's what it's about. When I look back over my life with Cheryl, last 27 years of marriage, there are so many conversations we had that in the end didn't amount to anything but a deeper relationship, a stronger bound, or a stronger tie, a stronger bind in marriage. 
And that's what the Lord wants. Come and talk to me. Well, what if I don't get what I want? doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because most of what we want is temporary anyway. It's going to burn. It's going to go away. We're going to head on into eternity. And then the only thing that's going to matter at that point is how we know the Lord and the relationship we have with Him. So he gives this great comparison to the widow. But he gives an interesting contrast that is to the unrighteous judge. See, though I am like the widow by comparison, God is not like the unrighteous judge by contrast. This judge could care less about the widow's needs. This judge could care less for her plight. But because of her dogged persistence, finally she just wears him out. So he grants her legal protection. Here's the glorious contrast. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, The Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore He waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for Him. So so we're the widow. And sometimes we might wonder if our case is ever going to be heard. But my judge delights to hear my pleas. My judge longs to be compassionate, longs to be gracious. You know, really the key to a persistent prayer life... It's not my passion, it's His passion. Now think about that. It is recognizing the passion God has for you. You begin to understand that persistence in prayer is not a difficult thing. Because you know that your Abba is looking forward to every moment you spend with Him. That it's a joy and a delight to Him. And that alone is a great motivator to continue to pray. 1 John 5.14, John writes, This is the confidence that we have before Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. There's confidence. And the confidence is not in my passionate persistence. The confidence is in His passionate desire to hear. And His call for me to enter in. So that's parable number one. Parable number 2, verse 9, he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So again, Luke gives us the basis of the parable. This is for those who really trust their own righteousness. I know none of you do, but, but these people obviously had a problem with it. And Jesus said in verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. Now hang on a second here. (laughs) For years I've read that parable and I've thought, what a jerk. (laughs) What a Pharisaical idiot. I mean, who who prays like that? Second thing to note here, not only pray with persistence, but pray without pretense. And it's harder than we might think. If you ask the question, who would articulate a prayer like this Pharisee? Well, we have on record written down a prayer by a Rabbi Nehunia. Rabbi Nehunia, back in the first century, wrote this prayer. Let me read it to you. I give thanks to Thee, O Lord my God, that Thou hast set my portion with those who sit in the house of learning. 
and thou hast not set my portion with those who sit in street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early. But I rise early for the words of Torah. They rise early for frivolous talk. I labor and they labor, but I labor and will receive a reward. They labor and do not receive an award or a reward. I run and they run, but I run to the life of the future world and they run to the pit of destruction. Now, I read that prayer and I thought, man, I agree with the rabbi. I thank the Lord that I wake with the desire to be in the house of the learning. I mean, look around. You all are here tonight. Praise the Lord. You made a decision to be in the house of learning tonight. Because it's a good thing. Right? I mean, are are you now wishing you weren't here? (laughs) This is a positive. I would much rather sit in the house of learning than sit on the street corners. I would. Just being honest. I want to be one who rises early in the Word to labor, as Paul writes in Philippians 3.14, pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's a good thing. I want to run in such a way, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9.24, I want to run in such a way that I might win. It's a right attitude. It's a good thing. Be careful of seductive Piety. Pretentious piety. It is so seductive. Even the words of the Pharisee, listen, aside from him calling out this tax collector, the words of the Pharisee are are not bad things. God, thank you. Thank you that I get to be part of this fellowship. I thank you, Lord. Honestly, I thank the Lord that I'm not strung out on drugs. In the streets of Seattle. I could have been. I thank the Lord that I'm among you. That we share the word together. I am so thankful I get to worship Him. And bless His name. I'm thankful I'm not a swindler or unjust or an adulterer. Praise the Lord. Isn't that good? And so as the Pharisee prays, I mean, I've always jumped on the bandwagon of, of judgment, and yet he's praying stuff that, yeah, it, it, it's good. Someone who fasts twice a week, well, that could be a blessing. I pay tithes of all I get. Man, I'll tell you what, if you tithe, you will be blessed. So these are not necessarily bad things. The issue is the heart. The issue is taking pride in these things. The issue is sitting here on a Wednesday night going, you know what, the rest of the fellowship just doesn't have what we have. (laughs) Our brothers and sisters in the bridge, you know, I'm so glad they're here on Sundays, poor pathetic souls, but they're not here on Wednesday like the real church. (laughs) You know, we're the insiders. We have the scoop. We have the greater knowledge. Praise the Lord. Okay, that's pride. And pride so easily sneaks in to even the good things in our walk, in our relationship. That's the problem with this Pharisee. When I am truly walking with Jesus, pride ceases to be an issue. Because the more I walk with Jesus, the more I am aware of His righteousness and my lack. The more I know that the only reason there's any righteousness in me is because it kind of spills off of Him and gets on me. You know, I'm covered by Him. 
And I see that when I'm with Him. But when I drift away from Him, even if I keep some of my behavioral methods of Christianity, if I drift from that real relationship with Him, pride seeps in. And that's what Jesus is warning against. Shouldn't His presence delight me? Gang, His presence humbles me. The presence of Jesus humbles me in a beautiful way. And I take delight in being humbled before Him. Because honestly, I can't figure out why He loves me so much. I don't know. Rick, why did Jesus die for you? No idea. And by the way, I have no idea why He died for any of you either. (laughs) But He loves us. And He's called us into this relationship. And prayer is not for righteousness. Prayer is, again, about relationship. Well, here we see this tax collector in verse 13. Standing some distance away. Now, note that both men went up to temple. The Pharisee right into the courts to pray his prayer. The tax collector can't even get inside. He doesn't make it in. He stands at some distance. He was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but is beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me. And I note this, he says, the sinner. (laughs) That's like Paul saying, I'm the chiefest of all sinners. And the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm the sinner here. While the Pharisee is saying, I'm the righteous one, the tax collector is saying, no, I am. I am the sinner. Why is he so upset? He's obviously aching over the separation of his own sin. The word here for beating, he's beating his breast. It's the word in the Greek, tupto, and this is not a tupto through the tulips. <laughs> tupto means to strike. And it means to strike hard. But the imperfect verb tense tells us that it's an ongoing, continuous striking. He doesn't just go, oh Lord. He is beating, literally, ongoing his chest. He is agonizing over the sin that has separated him from God. And he is pleading for mercy. God, be merciful to me. God, forgive me. This is is in one verse, gut-wrenching prayer. It's not the most articulate. It's somewhat awkward. But it's completely unpretentious. Man, this tax collector is real before God. And it's beautiful. He doesn't even consider himself worthy to go up to temple, standing some distance away, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. Yet in this pathetic position, he knows two things. He knows that he is the sinner and God is merciful. That word merciful, be merciful, he cries out. It's the word elaskomai in the Greek and it's used only two times in the entire New Testament. There are variations on it, but in this specific form, elaskomai means, and get this, you might even note this in your Bibles, it's so important. Elaskomai means mercy through sacrifice. It speaks of the atoning sacrifice, uh, that of a lamb on the altar. Mercy by sacrifice, and again, it's only used twice. The other time that it's used in the New Testament is Hebrews 2.17. He had to be made like His brethren in all things, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make Hilaskomai for the sins of the people. To make propitiation 
for the sins of the people. Now I know the word propitiation is used a couple of different places in the New Testament, but only in this instance is it propitiation as in tied to the sacrifice, the merciful sacrifice at Calvary. He had to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. It's sacrifice exacted upon another with the result of bringing mercy. And by the way, that result in the word halaskomai, in the tense of the word, it speaks of past, present, and future mercy. Now understand this. So you've got this tax collector crying out, Be merciful to me, past, present, and future. Be for me the sacrifice of mercy in my past, in my present, and in my future. Do you, do you understand that that's what grace is? That the mercy of God in your life is past, present, and future. That the things of your past that you still ache over from time to time, God's saying, sacrifice for. The things of the present day that you have committed before Him that would separate you from Him, God says, sacrificed for. And the things in your future that you have not even failed at yet, He says, you've already had a merciful sacrifice for that, and it's the cross at Calvary. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, He ties in that the the tax collector knows there is but one thing to save him. One thing that will bring propitiation, a complete cleansing of his sins, and that is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus at the cross. Well, how could the tax collector know that? It's a parable, man, and Jesus is telling it. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows exactly what He's talking about. This mercy here can only refer to the cross. And in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax collector went to his house justified. What does that mean? To be justified is to be just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if it's never happened at all. And that's a humbling place to be. That is the sweet, humble position from which to pray. That allows a man, a woman to pray without pretense because I've obtained mercy by the sacrifice of Jesus. Which means my prayers can be absolutely genuine, true, and real. I can lay it out before Him. Where I failed today, Lord, I I can lay it out. There's nothing I have to worry about hiding in my relationship with Jesus. Because He knows. And because His mercy has already covered it. Has already washed it away. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, Though the Lord is exalted, yet He regards the lowly. I love that. He's up here, but He cares about those down here. And, conversely, but the haughty, He knows from afar. The arrogant, the prideful. Isaiah 57.15 says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. And also, with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What a God. 
Verse 15. And they were bringing even their babies to Him so that He would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them, saying, you know, that's what we have a cry room for, for crying out loud. (laughs) But Jesus called for them, saying, permit the children to come to Me. Now the King James Version says, suffer the little children to come unto Me. And I can relate a little bit more to that one. (laughs) Because there are times where the children make Me suffer. But Jesus says, permit them, allow them, invite them to come to Me. Do not hinder them. Now note this, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Much has been made of this, this whole concept of like a child. This condition of being like a child that, that Jesus calls us to. He invites us to it. He says, this is, this is how you get into the kingdom. you got to be like a child. And so a lot of sermons and a lot of thought has gone into this. Being like a child. Because Jesus says we need to be that way, so we better figure out how to be that way. Otherwise, if we're not that way, we're not getting in. What about children does Jesus want us to emulate? Their innocence? Hardly. How about their humility? Not so much. What about their openness? We're getting warmer. What is it about kids that He wants us to emulate? You know what? Let's just keep it plain and simple. The children just wanted to be with Him. It's not something about their nature or their character. There's not something holy about the little beasts. is that they wanted to be where Jesus was. The apostles are saying, no, keep him back. And the kids are going, but Jesus is there. We want to sit on His lap. We want to be near Him. The, the kids, they knew that's where they wanted to be. It's that simple. Jesus says, that's the attitude you need to have to get into the kingdom. Why? Because that's where I am. And if you want to be where I am, you're going to be in the kingdom. If you don't want to be where I am, why would you even try to get in? You know, for those religious folk, I want my eternity, I want my place in heaven. Why? If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and here again is where relationship is so important, why would you want to be where the glory and the presence of Jesus reigns supreme? He says, be like the kids. They want to be with me. Do you want to be with me? Come on. Be with me. Number three. Pray without pretension, we already said. Pray persistently. Number three, pray in His presence. The more my heart is open to Jesus, the more I just want to be with Him, the easier it is to slide into prayer in any given moment. Because I know the second I start speaking to Him, I'm where He is. Now, we've talked about the fact that He's already present. He abides in my heart. He's made His home there. But I'm not always aware of him. It's kind of like Corey. Corey, my oldest son. Corey is the ninja of the house. I never know if Corey's there or not until he's standing right here. Ah! Hi, Dad. Hi, Corey. He's always there. And it's when I acknowledge him that I enjoy his presence. Same thing with Jesus. He's always here. 
But He wants us to acknowledge Him and to enter into and to pray in His presence and to be aware of the fact that He is right here among us. That's why oftentimes when we pray, we start by establishing presence. Let's, let's begin by establishing the presence of Jesus here among us. And it's not because He needs to be reminded or because He's somewhere else and we say, Lord, we want to establish presence. He's like, oh, oh i got to get over there. They're establishing presence. <laughs> No, it's for us. (laughs) It's for us to be aware of, to recognize the fact that Jesus is right here. To establish that, reestablish it in our minds as well as our spirits. Pray in His presence. Again, because Jesus is the glory of the kingdom. He's the reason why you should want to be there. And unless I receive the kingdom like that, with the desire of a child to be with Jesus... Why should I want it at all? So the question is, very simply, do you want to be with Jesus? Do you? Verse 18. Well, a ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Good teacher... Agathos didaskalos in the Greek. Agathos didaskalos. Agathos good. Didaskalos. Didaskos means it's where we get our word didactic. Didactic teaching, gang, is authoritative teaching. For someone to teach didactively is to say, this is how it is. And this rich young ruler, and we know he's a rich young ruler, we can put it together because of the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us different aspects of this man. He's young, we know that. He's rich, we know that. And he's got some kind of rule or authority in his, in his area. So he's a rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher. Good, literally, master teacher. And it's a term, good with teacher there together, the way he says it, it was a term that in that day implied sinless authority. It's something that you would say of the Lord. It's something that was never, ever spoken of a rabbi. It's going too far. Good master, he says. It's the same type of mentality as when God made all His goodness pass by Moses In Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. And Jesus rightly calls it. Why do you call me good? No man is good. No one is good except God alone. But understand this. Jesus is not denying the title. He's just inviting the rich young ruler, the... I've called him before the Fresh Prince of (laughs) Bel-Air. He's just inviting this guy to reflect upon the one he's addressing. Now stop. Before you even ask me this question, you call me good master. Think about this. Why did you call me that? Is there something in your heart that you understand? Reflect upon the one to whom you are praying. And that, by the way, is a good idea as we pray as well. We approach the Lord in prayer. We do so reflecting on who He is. Focused on His nature. His divine authority. So Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And the young man said, All these things I have kept from my youth. He's a good Jewish boy. 
All these things that Jesus lists out here pertain to the second table of the Decalogue. That is the second half of the Ten Commandments. It's divided into two halves. The first half is all about loving God, the first four commandments. The last six commandments are all about loving your neighbor. Which is why when Jesus asks what the greatest commandment is, He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. First half, second half. Jesus said in Matthew 22.40, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Because if you love God, you're going to do the first four. And if you love your neighbor, you're going to keep the final six. And all of it comes down to that relational love. But it's interesting as Jesus lists these out, a couple of things. The the one that He lands on at the end, he, He gives these last commandments out of order. Landing on, honor your father and your mother. Now when we studied the similar passage, the parallel in Mark, we talked about Mark chapter 10, we talked about that it's possible he landed on honor your father and mother because the issue in this rich young man's life was Korban. What's Korban? Mark chapter 7 verse 10 says, Jesus speaking, Moses said, honor your father and your mother. But you say, verse 11, if a man says to father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Korban, that is given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many such things as that. Legalism always finds a way to get around the law. Rather than keeping the heart of the law, the substance of the law, legalism finds every little idiosyncrasy and a way to so-called keep the law, like this rich young man from his youth up, without really keeping the intent. So perhaps he had a Corban issue. Maybe he had older parents, but rather than take care of them, he said, no, 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 this is committed to God. What's interesting is the Pharisee who would say, all my money is korban, it's committed to God, still felt free to use the money on himself whenever he wanted. He just wouldn't give it to help out his parents or, or relatives. So that's possible. Maybe that's why Jesus landed there. It's also interesting to note that Jesus leaves off the last commandment in the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20.17, you shall not covet. And you've probably heard that before. Rich young man, guy's got a money problem. Jesus leaves off, thou shalt not covet, in a passive-aggressive way to see if the man will notice. Maybe. It's possible. However we understand this, the issue was the ruler's focus on law over love. It was law over love. And in fact, verse 22 going on, when Jesus heard this, He said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow Me. Now Mark tells us that Jesus, when He said that, He looked at Him with love. That You could, you could see the love in His eyes as He said this to the young man. So let me ask you, what is the love of Jesus worth to you? If Jesus were to stand before you and say, I want you to sell everything. Give it all away and come follow me. Is His love worth that? What would you give up if He lovingly asked you? And look at what Jesus offers this guy. This is an amazing invitation. He offers him a spot on the team. 
Give up everything. Sell it all. And then come on. Walk with me. Be one of my disciples. Stay with me. Journey with me. Not everybody got that invitation. The good master teacher, the glorious God rabbi is saying, hey, come be one of my own. It's, it's amazing. A personal invitation to the fresh prince to come follow the good master. Verse 23, But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Rick, what do you think that means? Do you think that means the eye of the needle is the low gate and the entrance to the, the back gate coming into the city and the camel had to kneel down to get through it? You know, whatever. It's, the whole point is it's impossible. You can't get a camel through the eye of a needle. So what are you saying, Rick? I think Jesus meant it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's very simple. We complicate things when we get into commentary. But he said it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, well then who can be saved? But he said the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. And with that... Jesus now answers the original question of the rich young man. What was that? What, listen, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's impossible. It's impossible. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Inheritance doesn't work that way. It's not something you earn. Inheritance is something that is freely given to you, handed down to you, because you are someone's posterity. And another key to deepening your prayer, your walk with Jesus, pray with passion, pray without pretense, pray in His presence, and pray as His posterity. You don't work for an inheritance, you receive an inheritance. And we confuse the two. Inheritance is not retirement built up through the baggage of our lives, which is why Jesus tells this rich young man, man, sell off your stuff. Give it to the poor. It's, it's holding you back. It's weighing you down. Get rid of that and come follow Me. You're going to have your inheritance. Because I want to give it to you. Inheritance is a gift of relationship. And that's the problem from the very beginning. The young man says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You can't do anything. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Our inheritance... We're not going to stand around in heaven one day and say, how'd you get your inheritance? What was the work that that really turned God's attention to you so that He would get... No. We'll be standing around going, we have an inheritance. Why? I don't know. Same answer to the question, why does Jesus love me? I don't know. But He does. And the inheritance is a gift of grace. Verse 28. So Peter pipes in. 
Behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. Check us out, Lord. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. And I have found that to be so true. I found it to be true. Everywhere that I have gone, God has provided me with family. Some of you have said this to me, and I've heard this, and I love hearing this. You've said, you know, I, 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 have, I have brothers and sisters who won't talk to me because I'm a Christian. But I come in this place, and I am surrounded by more brothers and sisters than I ever could have imagined. Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul said, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Yeah, you may lose some things. You give your life to Jesus, you follow Him, He may ruin your life, such as it was. You may lose a spouse over it. Some have. Which is why Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, if you have an unbelieving spouse and they want to leave, you let them go. Some have lost relationship with brothers, sisters, children, parents. Some have lost homes. Some have lost livelihood. Because they chose to set everything else aside and say the kingdom is first, Jesus is first, He matters most. But God's promise to you, Jesus' promise is, you're going to receive so much more. Husbands, wives, friends, brothers, sisters, houses, land, whatever. It's going to be so much better if you will just follow me. And never forget this. For any personal loss that we might face, none compares with what Jesus gave up. Verse 31. And then He took the twelve aside. He said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. And all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For He will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged Him, they will kill Him. And on the third day He will rise again. We often say, Lord, thank You that we don't know our future. Because if we did, it might terrify us. Jesus knew. Jesus knew to the last detail what was going to happen when He got up to Jerusalem, where He was headed. Remember at this point in Luke, He's already making His way. In fact, He's going to come to Jericho in just a moment. Just outside of Jerusalem. He is heading for Jerusalem and He knows every nuance of what's going to happen to Him. We were in in Jerusalem this last week. And something happened to me. It's never happened to me before while we were there. I don't know if some of you caught this or not, but we were standing in what's called Antonia's Fortress. And it's a place where Jesus was mocked. It was the Praetorium, where the Roman guard took Jesus in there and they toyed with Him and they played with Him. They have a game that they play there called the Game of Kings, not Game of Thrones, that's a different thing. The Game of Kings... And you can see on the first century floor in Antonia's fortress today the markings of the game of kings. And it's the game they play with Jesus. We read about it. They twisted together a crown of thorns and shoved it down on his head. They put a purple robe on him. 
They beat Him with a reed. They said, Hail to the King. It was the game of kings. So, we're gathered in there. And I opened up the Bible to the place where it talked about specifically in the Gospels Him being in the praetorium and the Romans abusing Him. And my voice broke. Because in that moment, I was reading and I glanced over and I saw the markings on the floor. And I thought about in that brief second Jesus being there. And it just, it just struck me what He did. What He gave up. What He went through. The scourging. The beatings. I mean, before He ever got to the cross, the mistreatment, the abuse... And He went through all of that. And He gave up everything. And so when the idea of me giving up a house comes into play, when the idea that maybe people would cease to be a friend of mine because I talk about Jesus too much, when I have a family member angry with me because I'm following the Lord, man, that is small stuff compared to what Jesus went through. We're told in verse 34, the disciples understood none of these things. They didn't get it. Jesus is speaking plain and clear, and they're not understanding. They didn't get the meaning of this statement. It was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. But gang, we comprehend it. And we know, not only did He say He was going to go through these things, but He went through them, and He did them because He loves us so much. So verse 35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, He's 18 miles outside of Jerusalem now, making His way up to the city, heading toward His crucifixion. And as He did so, coming into Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road, begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, He began to inquire what this was. And they told Him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And He called out saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me! Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. (laughs) Pipe down, put a sock in it. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Mark tells us the blind beggar's name was Bartimaeus. And really Bartimaeus just means son of Timaeus. So we don't really know his first name. I like to call him Barty. Just easy to remember. And blind Barty is sitting there on the side of the road and hears that this Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Jesus' reputation now is all over Judea. It's everywhere. Everyone knows about this Jesus. But Bartimaeus, in his blindness, sees something that nobody else sees. He's calling out, Yeshua ben David! Yeshua ben David! The undisputed Jewish title for Messiah. You don't call someone son of David. That that belongs to Messiah. Bartimaeus knew it. This blind man knew that he knew that he knew this Jesus was Messiah. And Jesus, verse 40, stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. I have to believe with a twinkle in his eye, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? Because out of the crowd, this little blind man is just shouting out, Yeshua ben David, Yeshua ben David, have mercy on me. And the more the people try to quiet him down, the louder he gets. And Jesus is tickled, I think. 
What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and people be- and began following him, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, note that now they see it, they gave praise to God. And they did not see what Bartimaeus saw in his blindness. They were all blind to the truth. Because it's not eyes that see, it's, it's faith that truly sees. By the way, sometimes it takes you blurting out the truth so that other people can see it as well. And if you remain silent, they remain blind. And if you speak it out, they may tell you, pipe down. So speak it out a little louder. And if they say, shut up, speak it out a little louder. And if they say, put a sock in it, you get up on the rooftop and you shout the gospel. And you speak it out as loud as possible and keep speaking it, Messiah, Yeshua ben David, in the hopes that maybe someone else's eyes will be open to the truth. And they will see that Jesus truly is the Messiah. Well, chapter 19, continuing on, he entered Jericho and passing through there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. (laughs) Wee little man was he. Climbed up in the sycamore tree. I sang that as a kid. One of the shortest men in the Bible, by the way. Not as short as Nehemiah. Shorter, of course, than Bildad the Shuhite, right? Shorter than Peter, who slept on his watch. I mean, that's pretty short, you know. Verse 4. So he ran on ahead. What a comical story. In fact, we get comical stories back to back here. We get this blind Bartimaeus who won't shut up. And now we got Zacchaeus who forgets himself. This is the chief tax collector. And he climbs a tree to see Jesus. He's like a kid up a tree. This guy's out on a limb. What's he doing? So he ran on ahead, he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. What do you do when you have gotten yourself into a life situation that only Jesus can get you out of? And I think that's what's going on. I'm going to read into Zacchaeus a little bit here. I think Zacchaeus, as the chief tax collector, now hated by his people because he was extorting... He's ripping them off. That's how you made your money. Man, if you're a tax collector, Rome said, here's how much we want you to collect for us. Whatever you collect above and beyond that is your salary. And so they would bilk their own people. And Zacchaeus is very wealthy. He's made quite a living ripping off other Jews. What do you do when you're in a life situation and you don't know how to get out? You don't know how to make it right but you have a sense that maybe Jesus is the only one who can get you out. Zacchaeus has got himself up a tree. And he's looking to Jesus. 
he, this guy wants Jesus. He just wants Jesus. By the way, number six here, I don't know if I've given you five, whatever, pray things about prayer. Pray positionally. Get yourself in a position to see and hear from Jesus. That's what Zacchaeus is doing. He doesn't want him. He's short. He's rich, but he's short and the crowds are... He can't see. He runs ahead. I want to make sure I get some eye contact here. Get in position to see Jesus, to hear Jesus. And for some of us, that might mean loosening up our schedule a bit so that we have an hour a day to be with the Lord. It might mean getting up a little bit earlier. It might mean replacing some other activity with a daily prayer walk. Whatever you got to do, do it. Pray positionally. And it's not complicated. And prayer is not formulated. For Zacchaeus, it was as simple as climbing a tree so that he could see Jesus as he passed by. And in verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus! Now, wait a minute, what? As far as I can tell in Scripture, they had never met before. And Jesus looks up and sees him and calls him by name. Zacchaeus! Hurry, come down. For today, I must stay at your house. Jesus just invites himself for dinner. I love that. He calls him by name. He knows him. And not because of a prior meeting. Jesus knows Zacchaeus. Just as God knows you by name. He knows every one of us by name. John chapter 10, verse 2, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And to him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And listen, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Zacchaeus, come on down. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17 tells us in heaven we're going to get a new name that only Jesus and I know. I'm not going to know your name. There will be a name that you and Jesus know. I think that's so cool. Jesus is going to give me a special nickname that I know and He knows and nobody else knows. So when He calls that name, I know He's calling me, but nobody else knows He's calling me. It's intimate. It's incredibly personal. And I'll probably be going around heaven going, Hey, what's your name? I want to know. We get a new name. And Jesus calls us by name. And he hurried, verse 6, and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. People don't like it when sinners get saved. I hope it's okay with you when we move over into the new building that messed up people come. I hope that's all right. I hope it's okay that you may walk out on a Sunday morning and find some guy smoking out by his car. (laughs) I hope it's okay that someone might not smell so good or that someone's life might be a little messy. And in small towns like Anacortes and Oak Harbor, we know. We know who you are. I hope it's okay. Because something the first century church was known for was its broad acceptance of anybody. And the Jews made fun of him for it. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Think about who you were when you were called. <laughs> not many wise. Not many worthy. 
Kind of messed up folks. And the people see Jesus going into Zacchaeus' home. And they say, Ugh, ugh, what's he doing? Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he probably had, I will give back four times as much. Something has happened here between verse 7 and verse 8. You know, from climbing down the tree and getting into Zacchaeus' house, and perhaps they've already had dinner, but there's something that's taken place here that we're not privy to. Something that's gone on between Jesus and Zacchaeus, we don't know about. All we see is the aftermath, and it's Zacchaeus going, Lord, I want to make everything right. Why does he say I'm going to pay back four times? Well, Zacchaeus had a sense of the law. Torah law said in Exodus 22 verse 1, if a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall pay five oxen for the ox and four sheep for the sheep. It's called the law of restitution. And so Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back four times whatever I've ripped off. Whatever I've stolen. And even before he says that, half of everything I own, right off the bat, I'm going to give to the poor. Zacchaeus gang, in the law of restitution here, wants to make right among the sheep that he's fleeced. He wants to do right by them. He wants to make it okay. Why? Because when the shepherd calls a sheep by name, it makes you want to do right by the rest of the flock. When he calls out your name, it changes everything. When you recognize you belong to Him, I want to make it right, Zacchaeus said. And verse 9, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because He too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus didn't ask Zacchaeus to make restitution. Jesus didn't lay out, Okay, look, I'm here to save you, but you got to clean some stuff up first. What has happened here? The change in Zacchaeus came not when he saw Jesus, but when he received Jesus into his home. And suddenly everything was different. He receives Jesus. And again, something unwritten took place between them. The impossible happened. Do you realize what just happened with Zacchaeus here? The camel went through the eye of the needle. The rich man entered the kingdom. Proof positive of exactly what Jesus had said to the rich young man, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Zacchaeus was not a rich young man. He was a rich older tax collector. Chief of the tax collectors, so he had been added a long time. He was entrenched, he was dug in, he was a sinner among sinners, but the possible happened with God, the impossible. And Zacchaeus now, we're going to see him in heaven. And I would imagine his stature has improved. (laughs) And he's not going to be such a wee little man after all. We're going to stop right there for tonight. But I want to go back to the original question and just ask you, how is your walk with the Lord? And how is your prayer life? And how is it really going? 
we see in all of this, we see in the, in the parable of the widow and the, and the unrighteous judge, the Pharisee and the tax collector, we see with the, the children in Jesus, we see with the rich young ruler as he interacts with Jesus, we see it with Peter and the apostles as they walk with Jesus, we see it with blind Bartimaeus, we see it with Zacchaeus. And in every single one of these stories of the, the, the parables and the events that have happened in our study tonight, all together they have one thing in common, and that is Jesus moving in and through relationships. And it makes it so marvelous. And prayer is that. Prayer is relationship. Don't make it harder than it is. Leave the baggage. It's simple relationship. Jude writes in verse 20, You, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. How do you pray in the Holy Spirit? You keep yourself in the love of God. It was Augustine who said, True whole prayer is nothing but love. And he was right. Thursday, I was alone in Tel Aviv. I was ditched by our group. They all took off sightseeing everywhere else. I come out and like, what's up? I had gone upstairs to study um, and to prepare for Sunday, and then I came down around one o'clock or so, and everybody was gone, and which was cool. I really don't hold it against any of you except Brian, but that's you know it's all right. I gotta go. <laughs> And I was sharing this, this with Les. I, so I said, oh, well, I'm going to go out and see Tel Aviv. If I have to go by myself, I'm going by myself. So I started out, and I'm trudging along, and I went up Ben Yehuda Street, and, and man, it's just alive with Israelis. It's, it's a fun it's a fun town. And, and I walked through. I came to this, this uh, area, this open, kind of where four streets connected, and big open area, and there's a guy across the street with a, with a bullhorn, he's calling out through the bullhorn, talking about all kinds of weird stuff, and I had a cup of coffee, and I just sat down, and I'm watching Israelis be Israelis, and it was really fun, but I felt really alone, and I sat there thinking, it's a whole lot more fun when Cheryl's here. <laughs> I don't like doing this stuff by myself. And I was kind of having a little bit of a pity party there. I'm just like, I'm alone in Tel Aviv. This could be a movie. You know? Pathetic in Tel Aviv. And I got up, I had my coffee, and I got up and I started walking down this flea market, this open air flea market, and it was wild and crazy. And again, just Israelis everywhere doing their thing. And I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about how much more I enjoy vacation and, and going places and being places, how much more I enjoy that when I'm there with Cheryl, because I'm not alone, and I don't like to do stuff alone. I'm not good with the whole alone concept. And I got to the end of the street, and as I'm thinking about this, I heard so clearly, I heard Jesus say, well, I'm here. And I went, yeah, you're right. And the day changed. And I walked down along, got down to the waterfront, took off my shoes and walked along the Mediterranean. I was way further down than I meant to be. Our hotel was like this big. And I'm like, oops. <laughs> and I walked back and it was, it was great. And I was no longer alone. And I share that just to say, we all get in those places where we feel alone or we feel afraid 
or we feel like we're up against something and we don't know what to do, life gets difficult, and we forget for a moment. And my prayer, if I could pray anything for all of you tonight, is that you would just hear Jesus say, Well, I'm here. I'm with you. You're really not alone when you're a child of God. Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. The joys I feel, the bliss I share. Of those whose anxious spirits burn with strong desires for Thy return. With such I hasten to the place where God my Savior shows His face and gladly take my station there and wait for Thee in that sweet hour of prayer.